This is Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for joining us. I'm Henry. And I'm Danny. We're here to tear apart recent stories about our nation's armed forces and our veterans. We hope you'll take a critical look at what's happening with our military. And we hope you enjoy the show. Now, let's get started. guys let's move on to something a little more enjoyable like uh the military industrial complex thrilling <laughs> oh absolutely thrilling so i got one last headline today and it's going to take us into our, our main topic for the week and it's from uh zachary friar Brit biggs at newsweek and he has a, a pretty c- concise breakdown of the increase in weapon sales that that america has seen since president trump was inaugurated and the total was a 25% increase over sales in 2016, but it did fall short of records set in 2015 and 2012. The announcement does not include a breakdown of who bought the weapons or what types of weapons were sold. Um, President Trump has been pushing for more arms sales, tweeting in September that he would help Japan and South Korea buy more weapons. The administration has taken a hands-on approach to arms sales with his son-in-law, Jared Kirshner, Kushner personally calling the chief executive of the world's largest defense company, Lockheed Martin, to help build a package of $110 billion in sales to Saudi Arabia. So, it seems the great miraculous process that Trump shared in his travels across our Earth as America's greatest missile defense traveling salesman, it it doesn't work as quickly as he he would want it to. Certainly, he's going to be much more bragging in your face about the numbers, but because of it, because of the nature of it, it doesn't work that quickly. Um, however, there's already been some pretty extreme ideas that have come out of it, and uh, here's, here's another little note from that same article. One State Department source indicated that the Trump administration had toyed with the idea of creating a deal closer to help push for sales, although that idea was shot down by experts from several agencies. Foreign sales have been increasingly critical to U.S. defense companies who have focused on outside markets as U.S. weapons spending has remained fairly flat. Companies are not allowed to sell weapons directly with the U.S. government striking deals with foreign countries and then, buy, and then the countries buy the weapons through the normal Pentagon purchasing process. So, It's, you know, it's running behind. He's always going to brag. Trump's always going to have the big numbers, but the sales are happening. It's going everywhere, all the different things that we're selling. And, you know, they wanted to push, put more Abrams. I think it was, uh, was it into Norway or somewhere Um, along with the Marines? um, We we are entering a new period here, folks, of the the beast is going to start to get a lot bigger. And it's going to do it in a lot of ways that we can't always even know. Uh, uh, thinking about the um, the new uh, funding stuff for the CIA and that it doesn't have to be accounted for. You know, will we will we find out 20, 25, 30 years from now that some of these spooks were part of the beginning of the U.S. war with Iran? You know, that, that if, if we can't account for it, how do we deal with it? How do we put it in front of our leaders and say this is actually happening? Yeah, it's it's a it's a great topic, and it does tie into the military industrial complex. It's scary when it happens behind closed doors. It's just as scary when it's 
announced publicly, like the $110 billion arms sale, record arms sale to Saudi Arabia, the first country that President Trump visited. First country that President Trump visited. What else goes on in Saudi Arabia? I know they behead people publicly for things ranging from adultery to sorcery to witchcraft, which I think is phenomenal. Because if you're going to execute people, definitely do it publicly. Definitely do it with a sword. Definitely make a video out of it. Wait, no, I'm sorry. That's ISIS. Uh, maybe there are some similarities between our allies and ISIS. But they need more Abrams tanks. They need more F-16s so they can continue to bomb Yemeni civilians. Yep, they do. I'm not saying that the United States is the worst country in the world. I'm never saying that. I think it would be unfair to this country not to recognize its strengths as well as its weaknesses. But the opposite is true. We have to see our flaws. America is number one at two different things, and they are very much in sort of uh, opposition to one another. First, we're the king of freedom language, liberty language, right? We're the ones that say we are the helm of democracy. We're a city on a hill. We're, we're the beacon of freedom. Great. But we're also the number one arms dealer in the world, more than Russia, more than China, more than insert awful country we are supposed to hate here. We sell more weapons around the world. We preach peace, but we sell more guns than anybody else. We also own more guns than everyone else. Yemen owns like the second most guns per capita, and that place is a madhouse. It's like the Wild West, literally. And America has like three times more guns per person. It's, this needs oversight. This needs oversight. I know that a lot of people get their living from arms dealers. A lot of people get their living from the arms dealers that don't even know that's where their money's coming from. You know, maybe they're the janitor at Honeywell. I mean, a lot of people are dependent on this for their jobs, and, I, and I'm sympathetic to that. They're not all like, you know, evil, nefarious arms dealers. I mean, there's only a few of those. I mean, most of those people are the top. But we've got to take a hard look at where our guns go, guys, because uh, we sold Stinger missiles to the Mujahideen that was fighting against Russia in Afghanistan in the 1980s. And uh, we know how that turned out, right? Because those same people turned their guns on us a decade later, a decade and a half later. You've heard of one of them. He was this young Saudi magnate called Osama bin Laden. Okay, so we got to be careful where these guns go. If you think Saudi Arabia is, is completely stable and that those $110 billion worth of guns might not end up in some bad actor's hands, then you do not understand history and you don't know that region. We have to come to grips with the fact that we are both the supposed beacon of freedom and the biggest arms dealer in the world. Do we want to be that country? Do we want to be that country? I don't know. Some people might say yes. The executives at Boeing, yes. The executives at Lockheed Martin, yes, that's what they want. That's how they make billions in profits. And Raytheon. And Raytheon. I mean, you can go through it. We're naming college bowl games after these guys. Army one played in N1. I watched. I admit it. I'm a football fan still. I realize I shouldn't be, and I got to deal with that intellectually, but I still am. I watched it. The Army football team beat San Diego State in the Lockheed Martin Armed Forces Bowl. I have so many problems with that. First of all, calling it the Armed Forces Bowl is like super militaristic, and I'm not comfortable with it, but calling it the Lockheed Martin Armed Forces Bowl, bowl is like saying, look at us, the military industrial complex, alive and well. No one questioned us. You know, and, and we're going to make it public. They don't even hide it anymore. At least hide it. At least be like sneaky about your little arms deals. Go behind closed doors. Be all cloak and dagger. 
Not anymore. No, we literally send our president to Saudi Arabia. He dances with Saudi princes while holding sword, and then he sells them $110 billion worth of weapons with a B. Crazy. It's a crazy world, man. I, uh... So I found something kind of interesting when I was doing my research for this topic, and it was about a, a company called Boston Dynamics. Now, Google recently completed a purchase of it. It's the company that developed the uh, big dog robot that can go with soldiers and Marines on, on their missions. You guys might have seen them online. They're big skeleton-type uh, robots, and they, they can be really helpful in combat. They can help carry extra equipment, extra ammo, um, I know the Marines have been testing them for quite a while. While Google was clear that it would ensure that Boston Dynamics met all of its defense contracting requirements, it was not as supportive to continuing committing additional defense contracts. This is incredibly noteworthy for a company that's purchase value was twice the combined value of Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, Raytheon, and General Dynamics. And those are basically the big four folks. Those are That's who makes... Almost every missile, every rocket, every plane, every Humvee, every tank. Those four companies. Consolidation at work. Now, with Jared Kushner's move to intervene on Saudi Arabia's behalf for Lockheed Martin, it gave me an interesting idea. I didn't know this until recently, but the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter was a globally designed, financed, and tested piece of equipment. Uh, a country grouping of the U.S., the U.K., Australia, Canada, Denmark, Italy, the Netherlands, Norway, and Turkey. I picked this out because I think this is a really great example of how globalization has affected everything, including weapons sales. But in the long term, because of globalization, there's going to be opportunities for other countries and specifically other corporations to be able to squeeze us in terms of our defense priorities. And between materials needed for weapons construction, testing, design, and definitely purchasing, the global community could stand in a great place to mitigate or even lessen the US foreign policies in certain areas. But more than that, with a huge company like Google can buy and sell companies with defense contracts, that means that anyone who has a stake in both our imperialist foreign policy and or meaning anyone who has uh, or sales of weapons now to be at the mercy of the global market. Defense companies will be forced to consolidate more and more, and that could take a huge bite out of our current foreign policy positions because where are they going to get the equipment unless the rest of the globe buys just as much to make it cheaper? That was what Trump is, you know, one of his, his traveling salesman points, you know, as you buy a few more, the price goes down. It, 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 it's, yeah, it, it, and, and he just carries that with him like it's, becoming of a president or something. Um, but it shows that the economics of our defense industry are not, they're not going to be able to uh, mitigate globalization. They're not. And eventually there will be moments, there'll be times where there's going to be materials. Think about our current problem trying to get the right chemical for um, lethal injection. We have to... States are ending up using some barbaric something or other mixed together, but all the countries in Europe that make it, they won't sell it to us anymore. They just said, hey, we're done. We're not going to do it. And so if that happens, where are we going to outsource all of our warfare to? 
That's a good point. You know, the capital and capital punishment example is a good one. I mean, the, you can't even become a member of the EU, the European Union, unless you get rid of capital punishment. So much of the Western world is turning against what they see as barbaric activities. And I think arms sales could be one of the next uh, could be one of the next things on the shopping block for the civilized world, which I'm not even sure we belong to. The, this military industrial complex issue is an old one. We're going to talk about Eisenhower a little later, who uh, is one of the first people, I think, to coin the term and to kind of point it out publicly in the 1950s. We're still living with it. Uh, I have an article coming up that is uh, going to probably get some pretty good play up in the nation, the Huffington Post. Um, I'll, I'll initially publish it with Tom Dispatch, and it really ties into the military industrial complex. And what I'm going to call it is uh, Trump's national defense strategy, something for everyone parentheses, in the military-industrial complex, that is. And bear with me. The, the way I'm going to come at the military-industrial complex is, is not the typical way where I describe why it's so nefarious and I describe how, you know, congressmen make deals for arms trade to go into their district and then the generals that retire go work for those same arms dealers. You know that story. I feel like most of you know that story, and it's, it's, it's awful. What I want to talk about now is, like, how do we develop our threat picture in such a way as to make sure the military industrial complex gets fed. I called it like the chicken and egg uh, question for the ages. Like in other words, do we write our threat pictures, our intelligence pictures of where the supposed threats in the world are? Do we write them because they're real threats or do we write them in such a way that the military industrial complex gets fed and all the different services, Army, Air Force, Navy, Marine Corps, uh, that they all get what they want. I'm not big on conspiracy theories, which gets me in trouble on some of the sites I write on because of the comment section it seems to be full of conspiracy theorists. And they think I don't go far enough. I'm not. I'm kind of an Occam's razor guy. I think the simple solution or the simple answer is probably the most likely. But it's getting harder and harder to believe that when you read the most updated national defense strategy. For those of you who don't do strategy for a living, which is most Americans who are too busy trying to just feed their family in this highly unequal economy. This is the way it works, or it's supposed to work. The president puts out, or his office puts out, a national security strategy, an NSS, which lays out the general way the president sees the world and how he wants to use all the different tools in his kit bag, like military, economic, diplomatic, to get at those challenges. Once he does that, his secretary of defense the Pentagon puts out an NDS, a national defense strategy, that lays out the military's view of those threats in the world. And I would say that the current NDS, which just got put out just this last month by Secretary Mattis, I think it is a Mattis and McMaster masterpiece. I think the two of them engineered it together. I'm going to tell you why in a second. And I think this thing is built to make sure that everyone gets the toys they need and the budgets keep growing. In other words, if there were a conspiracy, and I don't think it's this simple, but if you were to get involved in a conspiracy where you wanted to get as much money as possible for the military and for the military industrial complex as possible, what would you have to do? Well, Henry, of course, you'd have to make the world seem like a really, really dangerous place. You'd have to say the world is full of threats, more threats than ever, guys, worse than ever, worse than World War II, worse than the Cold War. It's not, of course, none of that's accurate. The world is dangerous, but it's not necessarily the most dangerous it's ever been. And the military is not always the right tool to deal with those dangers. But anyway, if you were to have written the national defense strategy to make sure that everyone gets their toys and everyone makes their money, 
you couldn't have written a better NDS because this one is perfect. This is an NDS for the ages. The reason I know that this is a Mattis and McMaster production is because I've heard this threat picture before. I mean, if you've got time, I recommend reading at least the summary. I just posted it on uh, the Fort Sinai Hill webpage. I just posted the, the link to the NDS, and you can read the eight-page uh, abridged unclassified edition, which is all I've seen. I haven't seen a classified edition or anything like that. Uh, I don't have a need to know. But McMaster came and visited us at West Point when I was teaching in the history department. This was in 2015. McMaster is a real smart guy, and he's an alumni of the department. He went to West Point, and he was a history teacher there as well when he was a major, when he was Major McMaster, just like I'm Major Shorson for now. And he came to us, and he gave us a little talk in the conference room, and this is in 2015. So this is before he knows he's going to be National Security Advisor. This is before Trump wins, all that. But his view of the world, he said, was that there's lots of threats, and the best way to describe it is what he called the 221 theory of threats. 221, what does that mean? He said there's two big threats, Russia and China. There's two medium threats, North Korea and Iran, and there's one persistent threat, terrorism. And I heard it. And I remember thinking at the time, all right, well, I think that's a little overblown and I think it's a little alarmist, but I get what he's saying. There are the, all, all five of those are threats in a certain sense. You know, I mean, I'm not sure how we should deal with them, but okay. Well, I didn't know he was going to be a national security advisor. And I didn't know he was going to help Mattis write or help Mattis conceptualize the national defense strategy. And then I read it. I read it just the other day, and I said, holy shit, this is the 221. I knew this two years ago. I knew this almost three years ago when McMaster told me, because that's what the NDS says. It says there's two big problems. It calls them the revisionist powers, Russia and China. It says they're the big threat now, not the war on terror. War on terror is secondary now. Okay. I don't like the war on terror much, but so I'm not so sad to see it go. But uh, I started thinking, man, that sounds like a real cold war. It says says uh, – the problem is that Russia and China are both strategic competitors. That's what they're labeled. That might be true, but it sounds like we're painting them as enemies before we even have a war. It sounds like we're setting up a new Cold War. Document starts with China. It says that China is, this is the really scary part, pursuing, quote, military modernization. Uh, yeah, so is everybody. So are we. Nothing in there mentions the fact that we spend more on defense than the next nine powers combined, including China. And then it says, worse still, that China, quote, seeks Indo-Pacific regional hegemony, meaning regional hegemony in the Indo-Pacific area, specifically the South China Sea. That's true. And China's doing some kind of threatening things down there. They're moving some fighter planes pretty close to our ships, and they're, you know, they're, they're taking over islands and building them up to make airfields, and they're pissing off the Vietnamese, and they're pissing off the Filipinos, and they're, they're flexing their muscles. Hey, fuck, there's a billion of them. I get it. And that is a threat. But what the National Defense Strategy doesn't do is provide any context. Like, we have regional hegemony in the Caribbean, in the North Atlantic, in the Eastern Pacific, and it's totally normal when we do it. But if China wants to have any hegemony over the water that touches China, we fucking freak out. But I'm not saying China's not a threat. I'm saying maybe we don't want to declare a new Cold War just yet. Unless you wanted to feed the military industrial complex. Because if you wanted to do that, what better way? Who wins in the China as a regional hegemon, as a regional threat game? The Navy, of course, because if you want more ships, you need an enemy. Perfect. China's flexing their muscles in the South China Sea. We might have to build more blue water Navy ships. 
We might need some more Air Force too, right? Because we're going to have to bomb the uh, the coastal defenses of China before we can get our Navy close enough because of all their anti-access area denial missiles, which they have. And we might even need some more Marines, right? We'll probably need another Marine Brigade because we're going to have to seize the shoreline. You see how this works? I'm not saying that Mattis and McMaster are working for the military-industrial complex. I'm not saying that. I'm not even saying it's a conspiracy. I'm saying this national defense strategy is so alarmist that it makes it seem, at least, like all this is meant to do is get bigger budgets and for all of the service chiefs, I mean the Secretary of the Army, the Chief of Staff for the Air Force, Navy, Marine Corps, all that. It's called the Commandant of the Marine Corps. It, this document makes sure everyone gets something they want. Well, China's not really a good enemy for the Army, is it? I mean, man, you were in the Army, right? We don't really love amphibious assaults. We're not really comfortable on ships. I get like nauseous when I'm on the Staten Island ferry, okay? Like in New York City. I mean, I, I get it. Like it's not our our deal. We like land wars, right? We like tanks. We like valleys. We like seizing rivers and hills. So how's the army going to get on this deal? I'll tell you how. Russia, because that's the second big behemoth of a threat. We're told that Russia seeks to destroy or shatter NATO. It's a little alarmist. It doesn't mention the fact that we put NATO right on their borders, and we've been aggressive. Look, Russia has done some aggressive things. Ukraine, Crimea, Georgia, I get it. But, you know, that's their neighborhood. I'm not saying it's okay. I'm saying we do that too, and, and no one questions us. But if you need to deter Russia and you declare a new Cold War on Russia, that means the army is going to need more tanks. It's going to need more armor divisions. It's going to need more helicopters. We're going to need to start putting more soldiers back in Europe because, remember, we started taking them away 10 or 15 years ago. So the army gets to cash in too, ka-ching. It's beautiful. So then the next thing is these medium states. Iran, North Korea. I think both of those threats are overblown as well. I think they're genuine threats. I don't like Kim Jong-un. I think he's a fucking lunatic. But I also think he is a rational actor. I don't think he wants to ruin the world or kill himself by shooting nuclear weapons at us. And I think Iran isn't stupid enough to cause an outright war with the United States. I'm not saying we shouldn't deal with these threats, but basically declaring war on them by calling them outlaw states and that they have reckless rhetoric. I mean, that's funny coming from Mr. Fire and Fury himself, right? But if you're in the military industrial complex, this is a windfall for you because North Korea has nuclear weapons. So that means we need more air defenses. That means we need more Aegis destroyers in the Navy that can shoot down ballistic missiles. In Iran, you know, well... Hysteria always sells in Iran, and who's going to get in on that? Well, the Air Force, right? The Air Force is going to need more bombers to, uh, you know, to to do a preemptive attack on the supposed Iranian missile sites or the supposed Iranian, you know, uh, uranium sites. And we just started a one trillion with a T dollar nuclear modernization. A lot of people say, man, is that really how we want to spend the money? I mean, how many nuclear weapons do we need? Do we really need to modernize all of them? You know, there's a lot of critics out there. But if you say North Korea is an existential threat, now you've got to you've got to modernize those missiles because, well, North Korea. And finally, the last guy to get in on the deal is the special forces, which have grown so extensively that it's hard to even call them special anymore. That's not a knock at the Special Forces, guys. That's just a reality. We've increased them to 69,700 special operators by the time Obama left office. And they're only going to increase from here. That's bigger than most armies in the world. It really is. I mean, 
69,700 special operators. Well, what are they going to do? Well, that's where the last one comes in. Two, two, one, right? Two bigs, two mediums, one persistent. That's where the special force comes in, terrorism. So long as we say that terrorism, a tactic, by the way, not a person, tactic, terrorism. So long as we say that's an enemy that we have to engage everywhere it comes, special forces are never going to run out of a job. But you know what? Job security is not all they need. They need to be home with their families. They need to not kill themselves when they come home. We are breaking the Special Operations Command. Report after report. Suicides rising. Divorces rising. These guys are never home. They're out there chasing terrorists in the dark, some of whom aren't even really a threat to the United States, some of whom didn't exist before we put Americans on the ground in the first place and pissed everybody off. My point with the NDS is not that there's a conspiracy. I don't think that's the case. But that the parochial service interests want to make sure that they get enough money, that they get the boon that they want, that the budget is what they want. And the only way that works is if they seem relevant. The Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marines are terrified of seeming irrelevant. The, the thing that scares them most is that they won't get enough budget to fund their soldiers and fund their next technological innovation. That's their game. That's narrow. Get as much money as possible. And the only way you seem relevant is if you have a threat that means the American people brutally, desperately need you. The army needs a land war threat. It needs it. It desires it. It doesn't even know it. It just needs it. It feeds the army. The Navy needs a naval threat in order to justify more ships than you know all of our competitors combined. We have 10 or 12 aircraft carriers in the United States. I can't remember which one it is. I should Google it. Fucking China has like a leaky old Russian one. UK, England, which used to have the best Navy in the world, has zero right now. They're building two. You know, Russia's got like one that kind of works. I mean, look, I'm not saying these people aren't threats. I'm saying keep it in perspective. Maintain some context. And with that, I think we're going to talk about the guy who uh, kind of invented the term, Henry. So, you know, let's talk to us about talk to us about Eisenhower and how he saw this coming. So It was just after the time of uh, Stalin's death that he gave a speech, and you know, it, Ike is much more remembered for the speech that he gave three days before he left office um, in 1961, which he's, he coined the phrase uh, military-industrial complex. But it was this earlier speech that really gave people a, a more substantial breakdown of how he actually sees it. And that, keeping in mind, this is a person who is a one of the few five-star generals we've ever had. He, um, supreme commander in Europe during uh, the Allied invasion. This is someone who has seen combat and seen the worst of it. Um, I haven't read much about specifically about his assignments before World War II, but uh, I remember that he was a colonel and that they brought him up to four-star from there. Somehow this man was that brilliant and, and, and I, I think he was. I think he really was. Now, recently we've, uh, when, when we talk about Republican bravery, Republican political bravery, we'll say, um, we have people like Bob Corker and Jeff Flake who decided that they were going to share some profound truth with us while they're on the way out the door. And before I knew about the thing in 53... I had kind of the similar thoughts on myself about Ike, but I was like, Ike's not that inconsistent. He wouldn't do something like that. 
but it was during his era he began the military-industrial complex, okay? which is, just makes it that much more ironic that he's the father of the term. The, um, the nuclear buildup that occurred during the 50s, the invasion of Korea. I mean, he wasn't president. Well, no, he was president during Korea, wasn't he? Yeah, the second half of Korea, he was president. Yeah, he okay. actually ended the war. Okay. So, here's a little a little bit of the speech from 53. Oh, wait a minute, hold on. I, I posted the wrong thing here. Oh, sorry, this was an analysis. Okay, in this speech, the president contemplated a world permanently perched on the brink of war. Humanity hanging from a cross of iron, he said. And he appealed to Americans to assess the consequences likely to ensue. Um, separated in time by eight years, the two speeches are pretty complementary. To consider them in combination is to discover their full importance. As bookends to Eisenhower's presidency, they form a solid, solemn meditation on the implications, economic, social, political, and moral, of militarizing America. Now, I, I bring this up because... It's important that we understand something. Fighting the military-industrial complex is essentially fighting the last 70 years of how our country has lived. It doesn't matter who's in power, Democrats or Republicans, it still continues. Some administrations may support it a little less or utilize the military a little less, but it just it continues. Uh, Democrats, as Hillary Clinton, can just be as big as any war hawk that's on the, uh, the GOP side. The, the thing about the military-industrial complex is it, 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 it's all about trade-offs, trade-offs. And the phrase that's often used is guns versus butter. There are finite resources in any government, right? There's a, there's a finite amount of tax revenue that comes in. And of that revenue, right, of the, of, of the national you know, gross domestic product and, and the part that becomes government revenue, we got to divide it up somehow. Some of it's going to get invested in people. Someone's going to get invested in infrastructure, and a lot of it's going to get invested in the military. A large portion of our budget does go to the military. A large portion of discretionary spending, the number one discretionary spending, goes to the military. It's been the case for a long time, since we've been in a, essentially a, a warfare state, a permanent warfare state, since Harry Truman took over in the end of the Second World War. Ike saw it coming. He couldn't stop it. But at least he saw it coming, and he had the courage to tell the American people— the speech you're talking about in 1953, he said, every gun that is made, every warship that is launched, every rocket fired signifies in the final sense a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and are not clothed. This is not a way of life at all in any true sense. Under the cloud of threatening war, it is humanity, as you said, hanging from a cross of iron. This is Ike. The five-star general who graduated from West Point in 1915, who spent more than 30 years in uniform, who commanded the defeat of the Nazis, who saw the battlefield and saw the aftermath of battles, was horrified by it. For a man like that to question his own profession and to question the military complex that sort of feeds this warfare state was incredibly brave. It, it really was. And the guns versus butter debate is acute today, once again, because what do we see in America? 
Income inequality is as bad as it's been since the Gilded Age. Top 1% owns so much more than ever before. This latest tax cut is going to give them more. Rising tuition costs. College is unaffordable. My wife probably stays up at night wondering how our middle-income family is going to put four boys through college. Deindustrialization is ongoing in the heartland. A lot of those people voted for Trump, by the way. And at the same time, we have runaway American defense budgets. The 2019 draft budget is for $716 billion with a B dollars, more than we've ever spent before. That battle between guns and butter is still raging, and it seems like guns are winning. For a president who likes military parades so much, for a president who likes posturing so much, you're inevitably going to see more military spending. And that's job security for a lot of people. And I'm cognizant of that. And I don't think we should get rid of the military. I don't even think we should stop having the most powerful military in the world. What I'm asking for is a little context. Do we need to be the number one arms dealer in the world and spend more than the next nine countries on defense, six of which are our allies? Is that necessary? What's lost? What happens to a republic? What's the cost? And Henry, I think Ike laid that out, right? I mean, I think Ike laid out some of these costs. Um, what did he say? Like, what did he tell us about where this money could be spent? And I know obviously it's 1950s numbers that he's using, but it's probably just as salient today. Ike mentioned that, like, the cost of one modern bomber is this, a modern brick school in more than 30 cities. We pay for a fighter with a half million bushels of wheat. We pay for a single destroyer with new homes that could have housed more than 8,000 people. I'm sure that's true today because weapons have only gotten more expensive. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The inflation on the arms trade is just through the roof, just by its very nature. I don't think either you or I, who are veterans, who have benefited from the military-industrial complex, whose healthcare is uh, largely still and probably forever going to come from the military-industrial complex. I don't think any, either of us is saying, hey, we shouldn't have an army. No, no, no. That's ridiculous. I'm not even a pacifist. You know, I dabble, but I'm not a pacifist. I think that there are real threats in the world and that sometimes you have to stand up and defend yourself. But it's called the Department of Defense. What's interesting is it was called the Department of War until 1947 when it was renamed the Department of Defense. But we've actually fought more wars and fought more aggressive and foreign wars since 1947 than in our whole history before. So the day we changed to defense is the day we started acting more like it was the Department of War versus before when it was a Department of War and it probably should have been called the Department of Defense. Defense. Defense doesn't always mean hiding behind your oceans and waiting for the enemy to come to you. Sometimes you have to be proactive. But we're the only country that has special forces in 70% of the world. The only country. Wouldn't even occur to anyone else to do that. $716 billion is a lot of money. Bridges are collapsing in the United States. School systems are failing. Income inequality is through the roof. The welfare state, the social safety net, it's been devastated since Reagan by Republicans and Democrats alike. Hyper free market capitalism has its place, but it also has its weaknesses. It also has its downfalls. And that is that a lot of people at the bottom end up with very, very little between themselves and utter poverty. Yet we're spending all this money on F-35 fighters. And we're writing threat assessments that make it seem like 
all our enemies are 10 feet tall. And they're not. Russia has enough nuclear weapons to destroy the world several times over, and so do we. Neither of us is going to do it. Now, terrorists can get their hand on that, and, and something can go wrong. Absolutely. But uh, Putin is rational, even if he's a little crazy. Theoretically, all of our presidents up till now have been rational. I hope this one's rational, too. That's not likely. Here's what I know. We have 10 times more aircraft carriers than just about everybody else. We have more ships, more bombers, more nuclear weapons than just about everybody else. We have the best technology. We spend more than nine countries after us combined. We need to relook at the guns and butter debate. And, and I think that it's going to take veterans to say, look, I'm not against the military. I'm for smart military spending. I'm for prudence. I'm for balance. Balance. That's a word we could all use in our lives. Balance. And the United States is way out of balance when it comes to the military industrial complex. And I hope someday we can rename the college bowls back to what they used to be, like named after cherries and peaches. And I hope we can get ourselves back into a healthy balance between guns and butter. It's a tall order. I, I you know, I did halfway jokingly went through all the militarism stuff today but we people support war you know I I, I remember uh, I think it was 0708 I saw a poll that said you know two, thir two thirds of all Republican voters are strongly in support of the Iraq war how do you how do you cease war when so many people have been indoctrinated to believe that it is the answer to everything yeah, and it's the new normal, right? Because yeah. kids who vote in 2020 will have will have turned voting age in a post 9/11 world that have never lived through peace. That frightens me every day. You know, I got a freshman in high school who he doesn't he doesn't know anything. He was born in 2002. Him and all his friends, their entire lives have been war. It's not their fault. It's our fault, right? It's yeah. our parents' fault. Oh yeah. yeah. You know, we, we bequeath that to him, one generation to the other. Ike would be appalled by what he saw today. I, I, I'm confident in that. I, I, I don't even like that kind of language. You know, it frustrates people when people say, oh, the founders this and the founders would have done that. Like, yeah, the founders would have also enslaved like the black kid on your corner. Like, so like, let's keep that. Let's tone that down. Let's pump the brakes. And, yeah, and it's yeah. difficult to speak for dead people. But Ike spoke for us. He spoke when he was alive and he threatened, he, he saw the threat from all this and he warned us. And I used to tell my students when I used to teach the Eisenhower lesson in my the uh, Eisenhower lesson in my American history class. Ike is like a big hero at West Point. He's got a barracks named after him. He's got um, pictures everywhere. He's got um, uh, statues all over the place. And mostly he's remembered for Normandy and World War II and and maybe being president. And I always tell my students, I said, listen, when you walk by Ike's statue on the way back in class today, like they do every day, I said. I want you to think about him. And for a second, I want you to think about the other half of Eisenhower. Yeah, I want you to look at him and say, I'm proud of him for defeating the Nazis. I'm proud of him for organizing the Normandy landing in D-Day. But I also want you to stop and pause for a moment and, and remember that Ike who said that every missile that we make costs us schools, that it's humanity hanging from a cross of iron when we constantly live as a militarized people. Remember that, Ike, too. Don't forget Normandy, Ike, but just keep it in perspective and remember that there were two sides to that person. We need complex figures like that again. We need nuanced figures who see 
the benefit of the military and its need, but also see the scary, dark underside. I'm afraid we don't have that at the top of our government right now, maybe worse than ever. I think we have a, a single-minded person who lacks complexity and maybe empathy, and that's frightening because I think if Ike was back today, he probably would be too liberal for even the Democratic Party, and he was a Republican. Yeah, I keep thinking about that. I think Ike might be a Bernie Sanders running mate if he came back. <laughs> well, especially if he saw the, the nature of the way that our country does budgeting now and that you know Social Security and Medicare are not nearly as protected as people would like them to think, that uh, what all the changes that have happened to Obamacare in the last 14 months, you know, our own social safety net is under threat in different ways and... Yeah, you're right. He 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 wouldn't he would be great as a civilian administrator over the military, writing that line more so than anyone we've probably ever seen. And like you said, he was a Republican. So it, it if people start using the you know the the left versus right arguments, throw them away because everybody on both sides sends people to war. You know, it's it's what we've seen. It's what we saw with Obama. I know you. I think I'd seen a little thing. Um, earlier in your writing about that, you know, Obama was supposed to be the savior. Obama was supposed to be the guy that was going to come in. He was going to get it. He was going to see the pointlessness of the war on terror and change it. And he didn't do it. He came in and he became a straight up neoliberal. And that was the end of it. I, I, I drank blue martinis the night that he won the election. I was before that I, I wasn't even a registered Democrat. Before that, I, I thought of myself as relatively independent. I put my hopes in the Democratic Party and in Obama because it was supposed to be the anti-Bush. I had just left Iraq months before, disoriented, disenchanted, and I put a lot of faith in him. And look, I wish he could come back and do another term compared to what we have right now. Oh, yes. Yeah, no, he was but a bad you're right. in all things. So. Yeah, I mean, he had his strengths, but he maintained the warfare state, and he sold a record— Number of arms until this president. Uh, we'll see if he breaks the record. He gave more military aid to Israel than any president before. So for all the talk that Obama's, you know, Obama's weak, Obama's a dove, like the Republicans said, he wasn't. No. He was another war president. And Hillary Clinton might have been more hawkish than Trump. We don't know. She is a hawk. The mainstream Democrats. They voted for the Iraq War, folks. Hillary voted for the Iraq War. Chuck Schumer voted for the Iraq War. Even Joe Biden voted for the Iraq War. And mm -hmm. I like Smiling Joe, but he voted for the Iraq War. He did. These people are tainted. They're tainted. You know who didn't? Bernie Sanders. He was one of the few. Anyway, this is an important issue, guys. And, um, you know, I know that we've pontificated about this a lot, but think about it. Think about that complex figure of Eisenhower and think about the guns and butter trade-off and ask what kind of country you want to live in. Thank you for joining us today. Please come join the conversation at www.fortressonahill.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill or on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Fortress on a Hill. We want to hear from our listeners about the topics and issues pertinent to America's military and veteran communities. And last but certainly not least, Analyze your news and its sources very closely. Verify everything you read 
And remember that no one, no matter how powerful, are above criticism, especially those with the power to send others into harm's way. We'll see you next time.